0: Oh, I've been thinking.
1: Oh, what'd you want to do there Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night.
0: They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host, Blaine Dowler. How are you doing today, Blaine?
1: I'm doing well. How about you?
0: Very well, thank you. This time, we're looking at the 27th Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1954, and the Best Picture of the best picture winner of that year, On the Waterfront, directed by Eli Kazan. The film was released on July 28th, 1954, and featured Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy, Eva Marie Saint as Edie Doyle, Rod Steiger as Charlie the Gent, Carl Malden as Father Barry, and Lee J. Cobb as Johnny Friendly. The film's screenplay was written by Bud Schulberg based on the series of articles, Crime on the Waterfront. Our synopsis today, as usual, comes from Wikipedia. Mob-connected union boss Johnny Friendly gloats about his iron-fisted control of the waterfront. The police and the Waterfront Crime Commission know that Friendly is behind a number of murders, but witnesses play D&D, deaf and dumb, accepting their subservient position rather than risking the danger and shame of informing. Terry Malloy, played by Marlon Brando, is a dock worker whose brother Charlie the Gent, Rod Sliger, is Friendly's right-hand man. Terry had been a promising boxer until Friendly instructed Charlie to have Terry deliberately lose a fight so that Friendly could win money by betting against him. Terry coaxes Joey Doyle, a popular dock worker, into an ambush, preventing Joey from testifying against Friendly before the crime commission. Terry assumed that Friendly's enforcers were only going to lean on Joey to pressure him into silence, and is surprised when Joey is killed by being pushed off the roof of a tenement building. Joey's sister Edie, Eva Marie Saint, angry about her brother's death, shames the waterfront priest, Father Barry, into fomenting action against the mob-controlled union. Friendly sends Terry to attend and inform on a dock workers' meeting Father Barry holds in the church, which is broken up by Friendly's men. Terry helps Evie escape the violence in the smitten with her. Another dock worker, Timothy J. Tao Dugan, who agrees to testify after Father Barry promises unwavering support, ends up dead after Friendly arranges for him to be crushed by a load of whiskey in a staged accident. Although Terry resents being used as a tool in Joey's death, and despite Father Barry's impassioned sermon on the docks, reminding the longshoremen that Christ walks among them and that every murder is a crucifixion, Terry is at first willing to remain D&D, even when subpoenaed to testify. However, when Edie, unaware of Terry's role in her brother's death, begins to return Terry's feelings, Terry is tormented by his awakening conscience, and confesses the circumstances of Joey's death to Father Barry and Edie. Horrified, Edie breaks up with him. As Terry increasingly leans towards testifying, Friendly decides that Terry must be killed unless Charlie can coerce him into keeping quiet. Charlie tries bribing Terry, offering him a good job where he can receive kickbacks without physically work, and finally threatens Terry by holding a gun against him, but recognizes that he's failed to sway Terry, who blames his own downward spiral on his well-off brother. I'm actually going to stop and correct this synopsis. He doesn't actually hold a gun on his brother. He reveals that he's taking his brother to a spot where they both know people are taken to be bumped off. Yeah. Charlie gives Terry a gun, which is true, and advises him to run. Terry flees to Edie's apartment, where she first refuses to let him in, but finally admits her love for him. Friendly, having had Charlie watched, has Charlie murdered that night near the apartment, and his body hung in an alley as bait to lure Terry out to his death. But both Terry and Edie escape the attempt on Terry's life. After finding Charlie's body, Terry sets out to shoot Friendly, but Father Barry prevents it by blocking Terry's line of fire and convincing Terry to fight Friendly by testifying in court instead. Terry proceeds to give damaging testimony implicating Friendly in Joey's murder and other illegal activities, causing Friendly's mob boss to cut him off and Friendly to face indictment. After the testimony, Friendly announces that Terry will not find employment anywhere on the waterfront. Terry is shunned by his former friends and by a neighborhood boy who had previously looked up to him. Refusing Edie's suggestion that they move far away from the waterfront together, Terry shows up during the recruitment at the docks. When he's the only man not hired, Terry openly confronts Friendly, calling him out and proclaiming that he is proud of what he did. The confrontation develops into a vicious brawl, with Terry getting the upper hand until Friendly's thugs gang up on Terry and nearly beating him to death. The dock workers, who witness the confrontation, Show their support for Terry by refusing to work unless Terry is working too, and pushing Friendly into the river. Encouraged by Father Barry and Edie, the badly injured Terry forces himself to his feet and enters the dock, followed by the other workers. A soaking wet and face-scarred Friendly, now left with nothing, swears revenge on them all, but his threats fall on deaf ears as they enter the garage and the door closes behind them. So, Blaine, was this your first exposure to On the Waterfront?
1: As a complete movie, yes. I think we've all seen the, the taxicab scene, or at least that I could have been a contender speech. But yes, this is the first time I've seen more than 30 seconds of it.
0: The same with me, and I, I purposefully kind of edited that scene out of the uh, synopsis a little bit, because I, I wanted us to talk about it separately from the synopsis. I'm going to ask before we really get into it, ha- have you seen A Streetcar Named Desire?
1: Not yet. It's in the stack. This will be long past news by the time our listeners hear about it, but one of the reasons I've been behind, it's not just because, you know, I'm a teacher working in a pandemic, which during my certification year, so that's not a lot of my plate for that, but we are also expecting our first child in August, so I am trying to work ahead on next year's lesson planning and everything, because I'm expecting to do the 2021 and 2022 school year on no sleep. So that also means for the next little while I am probably not going to be watching a whole lot of nominated movies from the year. It's going to be what's nominated and I may not have the ability to carve out time for much else.
0: Well, uh, first off, uh, congratulations. I will say I saw many a film that I hadn't seen before during those sleepless hours trying to rock my little ones to sleep. So, no, I... I only ask because I found it an interesting um, counterpoint because that was also by, directed by Eli Kazan with Marlon Brando in the lead and Karl Malden playing a supporting role. And I think, I, I mean, I have not seen everything that Marlon Brando is in. To me, this is probably Marlon Brando's best performance, at least that I've seen.
1: Uh, that could well be. My exposure to Brando, the, the Brando films I know best, are this, Guys and Dolls, Superman the Movie, and The Island of Dr. Moreau. So, yeah, I'm, this is his strongest performance of those four, which is kind of funny, because the first time Kazan showed them the finished film, he left without talking to anyone because he was embarrassed. He thought his performance was terrible.
0: I have not seen The Island of Dr. Moreau, so I would swap that out for The Godfather in my case. He gives a very powerful performance in The Godfather. I think what works against it in my memory is how often it has been parodied with others, which kind of makes it seem like a caricature. But I felt like this was his most kind of authentic performance, and it is, it is encapsulated in that scene to where he kind of lays bare. Charlie Rod Steiger is, you know... Trying to persuade him and coming at it from a, I'm only looking out for you just like I've always done. I'm your older brother, and Terry. Just when have you ever looked out for me? <laughs> you know, I'm. I am where I am because you chose your career and this life with Johnny Friendly over me. I could have been, you know, that I could have been a contender. You know, what he's saying there is, I threw a fight for you guys. Mm -hmm. And my life has been in a downward spiral since I threw that fight. And there's a great awakening on Steiger's part. You've got two master actors acting against each other. And that's the moment when he gives the gun, knowing full well that, you know, he's finally chosen Terry over Johnny and what that's going to mean for him. Mm -hmm. But it's, there's a reason why that clip is, shown so often what were your initial impressions of the film
1: initially i thought it was good some of my issues with it i think are actually the the transfer the dvd i got because it there were often stretches of it that appeared to be out of focus but they also jumped and things like that like slipping the gate so i suspect that's a stronger indication of the quality of the print and the transfer process than the actual product. So I don't think that would have been an issue had you seen this in theaters in 1954. Right. But that kind of threw me a little bit at the beginning. So overall, I did enjoy the film and it's consistent with other films I've seen by Kazan where, you know, he's telling grounded stories, but he's stepping up on legitimate social issues. Like you said, this was Based on a series of non fiction articles about things that were actually happening at the dock fronts. And the law enforcement agencies apparently actually broke up the gang that was running the unions, or they they broke up that organized crime element of the unions during filming of this movie. So it was very topical. And they, I mean, they did it in that one particular waterfront, but that doesn't mean that that was the only waterfront these guys were involved in. So, tipping my hand a little bit, this is not my choice for the best film of 1954, but given how topical it was about an actual issue, had I been a member of the Academy in 1954, I might have voted for it because of that connection to the real world rather than the pure entertainment of what I would today choose
0: were you expecting what you got kind of from a genre perspective i wasn't but i just didn't know if you had any preconceptions coming in
1: i was but i think a lot of that is because most of my exposure to elia kazan has been in works that were released through the fox film noir series okay
0: i wasn't and i think it's because i i couldn't memory fails me on what it is at this point but Growing up, most of what I knew from film history came from little documentary series that they would air on American movie classics or Turner classic movies in like the nascent days of those channels, things like reflections on the silver screen. So I had seen the playground scene between Eva Marie Saint and Marlon Brando quite a bit, so I had a similar experience watching this for the first time that I did with. From Here to Eternity, to where I was expecting much more of a romantic drama. Which, you know, I've said before, is probably my least, (laughs) or, you know, on my list of, you know, least favorite film genres. I normally have to have it have something else paired with it to keep me engaged. So I I found kind of the real-life crime angle to be refreshing on it. And how raw and brutal it was without being gory because the synopsis kind of plays fast and loose for this a little bit on Wikipedia, but Johnny Doyle is pushed off the roof of a building. Dugan literally has pallets loaded up with whiskey cases dropped on them. The the neighborhood boys don't just turn on Terry. One of the things that gives him some dimensionality is, uh, you know, he raised pigeons and they, they break into his coop and they kill his prize pigeon. So it's a lot grittier than you may be expecting at first, but I liked that.
1: I can imagine. Like I said, that was closer with my expectations because I just pulled up Ilya Kazan's filmography. He's got 21 directing credits. Prior to doing this podcast, I had seen Boomerang and Panic in the Streets, both of which are film noir, as films in my adult life then i've also seen gentleman's agreement through the course of this podcast Mm -hmm. the only other Ilya kazan film i had seen prior to this was splendor in the grass but i think i was about 10 and did not associate it with kazan because i was there i was reading credits but there was probably a good 20 years between that and my next kazan film so it just didn't connect So Splendor in the Grass would definitely... Had you come in only knowing Splendor in the Grass, you definitely would have expected more of a romantic angle in this one. But yeah, between that and knowing that Brando's character was a boxer, which seems to be the go-to sport when you've got people with mob connections. You don't see a lot of mob-connected football and mob-connected other. That could be because of the history of boxing. Not only is it an individual sport, and it's a lot easier for one man to throw a fight than one person on a team of 11 to throw a game. Right. Right. You know, in football, maybe the quarterback could pull it off solo, but that's about it. Especially when you've got people being substituted. You know, if you're not performing, the coach could always pull you and stick someone else in, and then all bets are off. So it might be that, and it might be that just boxing started as an illegal sport. So it was organized crime that were making boxing happen. It was only made legal in an effort to regulate it. So I'm, I'm not a fan of boxing, but I do appreciate that making it a legal sport and regulating it that way did greatly reduce the number of deaths in the ring because until it was legalized and regulated, there were no requirements for gloves. Like It was literally just two people fighting and the winner walks away. So there was a lot of deaths and serious injuries prior to that.
0: For her first film, and I I I know it's not her first acting credit, but for her first film, even Marie Saint I thought did a really good job. I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit more. I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. As Edie Doyle and I'm glad Kazan got someone of her strength because she is really the main motivator in the film you've her and malden kind of have a weird double act you know you've got the you know it's 1954 so just by the mores of the time a woman's only going to have a limited amount of agency so i i think a lot of the role of father barry is to kind of put a similar masculine somewhat untouchable facade, someone who can have more agency than Edie does. But still, she's, you know, she's the one that pushes and prop. She's the one that gets Father Barry to start acting and speaking out. She stays an advocate for her brother's murder and doesn't give up the entire film.
1: Oh yeah, she is a very strong character. This is a role that they were originally hoping Grace Kelly would play, but she turned it down to perform in Rear Window instead. And of course Eva Marie St. would go on to work with Hitchcock in North by Northwest. But yeah, she as you said, she's got at this point about seven years of TV credits. But this is her first feature and she definitely earned this spot. She, She belonged here. She did the job very well. So instead of Continuing to say we'll discuss this later, should we get into all the awards this was nominated for and won? Sure. So, obviously this one Best Picture at the Academy Awards, which in this year were March 30th, 1955, hosted by Bob Hope and Thelma Ritter. On the Waterfront beat out the remake of The K-Mutiny, The Country Girl, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and Three Coins in the Fountain. Best Director went to Ilya Kazan for On the Waterfront, beating out George Seaton for The Country Girl, William Wellman for The High and Mighty, Alfred Hitchcock for Rear Window, and Billy Wilder for Sabrina. Best Actor did go to Brando, even though he personally, as we said, wasn't a fan of his performance here. The other nominees were Humphrey Bogart for The K Mutiny, Bing Crosby for The Country Girl, James Mason for A Star Is Born, and Dana Hurley for Robinson Crusoe. Best Actress went to Grace Kelly. For The Country Girl. Other nominees were Dorothy Dandridge or Carmen Jones in the title role. And she ended up actually with that became the first African American to be nominated for Best Actress. Other nominees were Judy Garland for A Star Was Born, Audrey Hepburn for Sabrina, and Jane Wyman for A Magnificent Obsession. Best Supporting Actor went to Edmund O'Brien for the Barefoot Contessa. He beat out Tom Tully for the Kane Mutiny. He also beat out Lee J. Cobb, Carl Malden, and Rod Steiger all for On the Waterfront. So I think they may have split the vote there.
0: I think so as well. How do you pick amongst the three? I mean, three great actors in really different roles in the same film. I've I've kind of had a revelation about Carl Malden just because of my age, I knew him as the face of the MPAA, <laughs> you know. Not so much as um an actor. So seeing him in this and a streetcar named Desire has been a revelation. Lee J. Cobb is every bit as powerful in this as he is in Twelve Angry Men, and I love all the ticks and nuance that Steiger brought to his role. So I. I need to see the barefoot contestant now because I have to see what kind of a performance Edmund O'Brien brought to knock those three guys out of one of those three guys out of the seat.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I mostly know O'Brien from DOA, which is worth checking out and public domain. So that was from 1950. And Rod Steiger, yeah, I was not expecting this type of role from him. I know him from Oklahoma and Mars Attacks. So. This is not like either of those.
0: Now, the best showcase for Steiger is a film that we will never mention again, probably, in this podcast. But it's a film called No Way to Treat a Lady. And he plays a serial killer who takes on different personas to lure in his victims. So you literally see him Act as several different people during the course of that film. It's a really good showcase for him.
1: Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Continuing on with the nominations, as we said, Eva Marie Saint playing Edie Doyle was a driving force in this film. The producers decided to submit her for nomination as Best Supporting Actress rather than Best Actress because they felt the Best Actress category in this particular year was going to be far too competitive and. They may have been right, so I don't know that I I haven't seen enough of the best actress nominated roles to know if Eva Marie Saint could have beaten Grace Kelly, but she did take home best supporting for this. Beating out Nino Falk for Executive Suite, Katie Girato for Broken Lance, Jan Sterling for the High and Mighty, and Claire Trevor for the High and Mighty.
0: I'm just curious as to how they have enough foresight to kind of predict the nominations to know that. I don't disagree in Doing some of the research for this podcast, everyone thought that Judy Garland was the shoe in winner to like the point where she was recovering from a pregnancy and they had like a remote hookup ready to record her uh, acceptance speech. So Grace Kelly kind of took it as a dark horse that year.
1: Yeah, uh, to the point where, where is it? It was Grochel Marx. Trying to find yeah, Groucho Marx later sent her a telegram expressing that her loss was the biggest robbery since Brinks. Because that was a like a massive bank robbery that had happened in 1950. So yeah, that that was definitely an upset for some. I haven't actually seen either performance, so I don't know which way I would have voted, but yeah, Judy Garland was the, the front runner for that. Moving on to the writing awards, best screenplay went to the country girl beating out Kane Mutiny, Rear Window, Sabrina, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Best Story and Screenplay did go to On the Waterfront by Bud Schulberg, beating out The Barefoot Contessa, uh, Genevieve, The Glenn Miller Story, and Knock on Wood. The Best Story went to Broken Lance, beating out Bread, Love, and Dreams, Forbidden Games, Night People, and There's No Business Like Show Business. Best Documentary Feature went to Disney's The Vanishing Prairie, beating out Stratford Adventure. Best Documentary Short Subject was Thursday's Children, beating out Jet Carrier and Rembrandt to Self-Portrait. Best Live Action Short Subject, One Reel, went to This Mechanical Age, beating out The First Piano Quartet and The Strauss Fantasy. Best Live Action Short Subject, Two Reel, went to A Time Out of War, beating out Beauty and the Bull, Jet Carrier and *C.M.* Best Short Subject Cartoons went to When Magoo Flew, which was a Mr. Magoo cartoon, beating out Crazy Mixed Up Pup, Pigs Is Pigs, Sandy Claws, and Touche Pussycat. The Best Music Score of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture went to uh, Dmitri Tiomkin for The High and the Mighty, beating out The K-Mutiny, Genevieve on the Waterfront, and The Silver Chalice.
0: I will say that I at least agree that On the Waterfront deserved to be nominated. I'm not one who typically takes notice of the score but when that film opened with kind of that drum drumbeat as Johnny Friendly and his men kind of marched out of the Little Union Headquarters shack on the dock, it drew me in and kind of kept me engaged the rest of the film.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's Leonard Bernstein. He is one of the greats for composers. So continuing with best scoring of a musical picture, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers won. That's Adolf Deutsch and Saul Chaplin. Beating out Carmen Jones, The Glenn Miller Story, A Star is Born and There's No Business Like Show Business. Best Song was Another Dark Horse, where Three Coins in the Fountain, the title song from that film, beat out Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep, The High and the Mighty, Hold My Hand, and the frontrunner for that was The Man That Got Away from A Star Is Born. Best Sound Recording went to The Glenn Miller Story, beating out Brigadoon, The Cane Mutiny, Rear Window, and Susan Slept Here. Best Art Direction Black and White, On the Waterfront 1, beating out The Country Girl, Executive Suite, La Place*, and Sabrina. Best Art Direction Color went to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, beating out Brigadoon, Desiree, Red Garters, and A Star Is Born. Best Cinematography Black and White, Boris Kaufman took the award home for On the Waterfront, beating out the Country Girl Executive Suite Road Cop and Sabrina, which is another reason I suspect that the picture quality in the DVD was not indicative of the original release. Best Cinematography Color went to Three Coins in the Fountain, beating out the Egyptian Rear Window, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and the Silver Chalice. Best Costume Design Black and White went to actually Edith Head for Sabrina. I think Edith Head has the awards for the most uh, wins for a woman. She's got eight Academy Awards for her costume design. Beating out the earrings of Madame de uh, Executive Suite Indiscretion of an American Wife and It Should Happen to You. The best costume design color went to Gate of Hell, a Japanese film. Beating out Brigadoon, Desiree, A Star is Born and There's No Business Like Show Business. Best Film Editing went to On the Waterfront, making it the 8th win out of 12 nominations for that film, beating 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The King Mutiny, The High and the Mighty, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And Best Special Effects went to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, beating out *Helen Highwater High Water and Them. I would agree with that, having seen 20,000 Leagues and Them. The Honorary Awards went to Bosch & Lom Optical for their contributions to the advancement in the motion picture industry. They produced a lot of the early widescreen lenses for the anamorphic widescreen that was coming in in the early 50s to compete with television. Kemp R. Neaver won for the development of the Renovir process, which has made possible the restoration of the Library of Congress paper film collection, as well as Greta Garbo, Danny Kaye, uh, John Whiteley for Juvenile Performance in The Little Kidnappers, and Vincent Winter for his Juvenile Performance in The Little Kidnappers. Best foreign language film went to Jigo Kumon. Oddly, I don't know why they list Gate of Hell for the best costume design. They use the Japanese title for best foreign language film, but the English title for the best costume design. Now, before people get upset, the best foreign language film went to Gate of Hell, This was not a competitive year for Best Foreign Language Film. That starts in 1956. But for those who know their dates, this is the year Seven Samurai came out, which is highly regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. But remember, to be eligible for an Academy Award, it has to be released in Los Angeles that year. And Seven Samurai was not released in Los Angeles until 1956. So don't get upset that it didn't take home Best Foreign Language Film in 1954. Get upset that it wasn't even nominated in 1956, but we'll talk about that more in a couple months. Anyway, so that is the rundown. On the Waterfront with 12 nominations and 8 wins. And the only other movies this year with multiple wins were 20,000 Leagues, The Country Girl, and Three Coins in the Fountain with 2 wins each. So the 7 nominations to K-Mutiny and The Country Girl, 6 for The High and the Mighty, Sabrina, and A Star is Born, 5 for Seven Brads for Seven Brothers, 4 for Executive Suite in a Rear Window, Three for 20,000 Leagues, Brigadoon, Glenn Miller Story, There's No Business Like Show Business, and Three Coins in the Fountain. And two each for Barefoot Contessa, Broken Lance, Carmen Jones, Desiree, Genevieve, Jet Carrier, Silver Chalice, and Susan Slept Here. So before going on to the Golden Globes, do you have anything to add? Is there anything that stands out to you from this?
0: I don't think so. You know, I haven't seen everything that was nominated, but out of the three that I've seen... On the waterfront cane mutiny and the country girl. Out of what's nominated, I'll reserve like what came out in the year for when we cover the letterbox and IMDB list. But out of what was nominated, I think they made the correct choice.
1: Alright. I I would also say they correct made the correct choice from the three I have seen, which are On the Waterfront, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and Three Coins in the Fountain. So I guess we're in agreement with the Academy in the context of the nominees. Because I've actually seen the other two, although Three Coins, I vaguely, vaguely remember. That's a Clifton Webb movie I'd forgotten I had seen. Because I when I saw that, I was younger than when I saw Barefoot in the Park or the, the other Iliak Kazan film. whose name I'm suddenly blanking on. Uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is... I mean, Stanley Donovan directs it, and he's good at directing musicals. He co-directed Singing in the Rain. I have at issues with the story. At the time we are recording this, Turner Classic Movies have just announced that they're going to have a series on controversial films to discuss them in context, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is on the list, along with Gone with the Wind and some of the other contentious films that we've discussed in the past. Because it's uh, the musical numbers are great. The gender politics... Have massive issues.
0: Isn't it essentially. So I'm going to use the. Maybe kidnapping's a better word in the context of the story. It's basically about looking through modern lens. The men kidnap the girls, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, they are inspired by the historical events, which actually led to the tradition of carrying the bride over the threshold. And once I learned that, I did not do that when my wife and I got married. But yeah, they are out in the middle of nowhere, so their plan is to just go to the nearest town, they kidnap a bunch of girls, you know, women that they consider pretty, and bring them up to their their logging cabin, knowing that once the snow hits, nobody will be able to reach them for months. So really, it starts as a kidnapping and turns into Stockholm Syndrome. Now, to be fair, the women are not... On board of the plan immediately, but yeah, after several months where these are the only men in their lives, they do end up pairing off, and they all get married, and it's a, a happy ending for all. But I, yeah, I have major issues with it. Moving on to the Golden Globes, then they are still not listing the nominees, and I'm honestly not sure at this point if the Golden Globes even had public nominees or if it's just all voting members could just write in votes and they added them up. But the best picture did go to On the Waterfront for the best motion picture drama. Best motion picture comedy or musical went to Carmen Jones. Best performance by an actor in motion picture drama went to Marlon Brando for On the Waterfront again. Best performance for an actress in a motion picture, Grace Kelly for The Country Girl. Uh, Best performance by an actor in a comedy or musical went to James Mason for A Star is Born. Best performance by an actress in a motion picture went to Judy Garland for A Star is Born. Uh, best performance by an actor in a supporting role was, again, Edmund O'Brien in The Barefoot Contessa. So the Golden Globes also agree that he was you know, the, the best choice even up against those three performances in On the Waterfront. And again, because I think they may have just been voting and not nominating, that also says a lot. Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role went to Jan Sterling for The High and the Mighty. Best Director, Ilya Kazan on the Waterfront. Best Screenplay, Ernest Lehman, Sabrina. Best Foreign Language Film. Here, this was actually a competitive category, or maybe it was just four winners, but it's Jean Viave, La Mujer de la Camelia, No Way Back, and 24 Eyes, which is another Japanese film that will actually be coming up later. The Henrietta Award for the World Film Favorites went to Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. Special Achievement Award went to Walt Disney for The Living Desert. Color Cinematography went to Brigadoon, Black and White Cinematography to On the Waterfront. Promoting International Understanding went to Broken Lance, directed by Edward Dimitrick. Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Jean Hersholt. And New Star of the Year was a three-way tie for Joe Adams and Carmen Jones, George Nader in Four Guns to the Border, and Jeff Richards for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. New Star of the Year Actress, another three-way tie. Shirley McLean for The Trouble with Harry. Kim Novak for Ft. And Karen Sharp for The High and the Mighty. And then honor awards to John Ford, Herbert Kalmus, and Dimitri Tiomkin.
0: Okay, can, can we just discuss what publicity thing the new star of the year actress had to have been kim novak and shirley McLean have gone on to do great works i karen sharp's not a name that i'm not familiar with but the fact that we're not seeing eva marie saint here is just wrong you know and i'm i'm as big of a hitchcock fan as anyone but when i stack The Shirley MacLaine performance and the trouble with Harry against Eva Marie Saint's performance and on the waterfront, I I just, I don't see it playing.
1: Yeah, I am actually trying to look up Shirley MacLaine because I'm wondering if, as we said, Eva Marie Saint had a fairly extensive TV career at this point, whereas Shirley MacLaine did not. I wonder if Eva Marie Saint was disqualified from the New Star because of her TV work. Got it. Okay. Because looking at I've gone through Shirley MacLaine and Kim Novak, now I'm looking at Sharon Karen Sharp at least on Wikipedia rather than IMDb, so it's not as comprehensive. And okay, yeah, that doesn't make sense for Karen Sharp because the other two their first credited roles were for those roles in 1954. Wikipedia lists nothing earlier. Whereas Karen Sharp, okay. behind the Mighty, she They've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight films prior to High, The High and the Mighty on her credit list, and only five after. So, she was more than halfway through her career when she won this most promising new actress. And apparently in 1959, Modern Screen gave her the Golden Key Award her as one of the most promising young actresses in the business. And she has one credit after that on Wikipedia. So, I'm following her through. Okay, yeah, Wikipedias are incomplete. So I'm seeing her... She is still alive, and she's got a role in post-production in Fate's Shadow, the whole story. After playing Mary in Fate's Shadow, which is a short film in 2019, which was her first job since 1967. Yeah, she her IMDb credits go back to 1951. So, looking up Shirley MacLaine on the IMDb. The Trouble with Harry was her first credit of any kind. Okay. And Kim Novak was her third, but they were all the, the, the same year. She's got an uncredited role in the French line, and then she's got Pushover and both 1954. Okay. So I don't know what's going on with Kim Sharp, but it looks like Eva Marie Saint's TV credits might have disqualified her as a new star.
0: Okay, that's fair. I I just was like, okay, she won Best Supporting Actress over here, and it was her first film, but she's not over here? That just didn't jive.
1: Yeah, and I am a huge Hitchcock fan, as listeners will know. We'll probably be getting into that momentarily when we talk about The Letterboxd and what our, our picks for the Best Film of the Year would be. But The Trouble with Harry is not one of his best. One of the reasons Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense is because when he tried to direct films in other genres, they didn't really work. I mean, Juno and the Peacock is not good. The trouble with Harry has its moments, but it is nothing compared to his stronger works. Uh, it it's fine, but if that were typical of his work, I would not count Hitchcock as one of my favorite directors of all time. So uh, if we're ready to get into the letterbox ratings for the Sure. So as far as letterboxed voters are concerned, On the Waterfront is the fourth best film of the year and the best of the nominees. But it is... The, the third film of the year is Chancho the Bailiff. Rear Window is number two and Seven Samurai is number one. As we said, Seven Samurai did not qualify until 1956. Because of Academy rules. So I'm totally okay with them not nominating Seven Samurai this year. And as I said earlier on, because of how topical On the Waterfront was, if I were voting in 1954, I could very well have chosen it. But if you ask me which of these movies do I prefer to watch today, Rear Window. No question.
0: No, I I think I'd agree with that. I think Rear, not that On the Waterfront is not. Rewatchable, but I do think Rear Window has more, has a higher rewatchability factor, and I think it, as dark and I'm somewhat doing dark and air quotes in front of the mic as the subject matter in Rear Window is, I think it extends more easily to other audiences. You know, I have a <clears throat> she's fourteen now. But my daughter's interested in drama and musicals. But other than musicals, she likes to watch Hitchcock films. She started when she was roughly 12. And, you know, something like Rear Window has a greater appeal to her than I think On the Waterfront would. I think On the Waterfront is a little bit more of its time to a certain extent.
1: I think so. Even just looking at, I mean, having watched both with my wife for On the Waterfront, she did occasionally pull out her phone and check Facebook and email. Um, I was tempted to do so and probably would have if we were not podcasting about this film. That doesn't happen with Rear Window. And that's even when I'm watching it on repeat viewings while On the Waterfront was the first. Going down the other films, this was a strong year for foreign films. La Strada is in there, Twenty Four Eyes is in there, which is one of the, the Japanese films that actually received nominations. Then Johnny Guitar, which I hadn't heard of, Mad About Men, and then In Osaka. The eleventh best film of the year is Dilemma for Murder. So I think Hitchcock actually had three releases in 1954. Mm-hmm. The Sound of the Mountain, Godzilla comes in at nine. At number 13, One Spot Above, A Star is Born. Looking at other major U.S. releases after that, we've got Sabrina showing up in here. A TV movie of 12 Angry Men from 1954. We'll be talking about other versions later. The Kane Mutiny. That one is the next of the nominees. White Christmas shows up on the list. Uh, The Creature from the Black Lagoon is showing up here, and 20,000 Leagues Into the Sea, and then you have to dig into multiple pages to find the other nominees for the year.
0: The only other, I mean, King mutiny was fine. It was entertaining. The only one that you haven't seen out of the nominees that I would recommend for you, Blaine, is The Country Girl, just because while it's not a Hitchcockian film, I think you'll find Grace Kelly relevatory in this film, especially with your grounding in Hitchcock, because she plays complete. She is not her Hitchcock blonde persona in that film, and I think you'll find it a breath of fresh air for her.
1: Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Comparing now on the IMDb, number one is Seven Samurai. Number two is 24 Eyes. The third best film of the year is Rear Window. Number four is Dial M for Murder. And then On the Waterfront is number five. Then again we have La Strada, which is also ineligible for the Oscars until 1956. Again, Sabrina and Johnny Guitar. Kane Mutiny is the next of the nominees. And at number 15, White Christmas is 16 and A Star is Bore is 17. And then we have Godzilla at number 18. Or I should say Gojiro or Gojira. Because that's there's a, a story there about the differences between the Japanese and American versions. Number 23 is where we have Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. The Country Girl comes in at number 30. And then if you want to get to three coins in a fountain, you have to dig down to number 88 on a list of 104 films. So that film has not been well remembered. When it's down below them and Creature from the Black Lagoon, which are enjoyable but goofy. Well, the Creature from the Black Lagoon. We, sh- I should mention, it was actually, uh, from a technical standpoint, it was huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll probably bring it up again with a later Best Picture winner that was inspired by Creature from the Black Lagoon, with the premise, well, what if the girl also falls in love with the creature? But Creature from the Black Lagoon was not only in 3D, and one of the first films in 3D, that was the first film with surround sound stereo. That actually had five audio tracks, in a time when most films were still at mono. Actual on film stereo does not begin until 2001 A Space Odyssey, and even then, that was only if you saw the 70mm print with the magnetic stripe. If you're seeing a 35mm print of 2001, it's a mono sound. The big challenge with Creature from the Black Lagoon and getting that surround in there is that the theatrical release technology didn't support it, so they shipped it with four records, or sorry, five records. So with the 3D, There was no on-film audio track. You were supposed to have five records in the, like, five locations in the theater. So front right, front left, rear right, rear left, and front center. And have the projectionist and five people at the records synchronized to drop the needles simultaneously to keep the audio tracks in sync. Which was an interesting but failed experiment, I should think. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out because it's... Yeah, just watching it today, it's hard to understand how it earned its reputation and why it revived the Universal horror film for a while until you find out things about the technical delivery that are not reproduced on the DVD releases. So most of the DVD releases just have the monaural soundtrack and the 2D image. Anyway, so... With that, if you were in the academy, what would you have picked for the best film of the year?
0: It's really a tough call for me. Honestly, I think it would have just depended on the mood and the day. I I love Rear Window, but this this had a lot going for it as well. And there, while you know thematically crime is common between both films, there they're not really the same they're not really the same genre
1: no and it's not the same style of crime
0: no i i guess rear window but i'm going to say you could catch me on the on a, the right day and i'd pick on the waterfront but today i'm going to say rear window
1: yeah and as i've said i would pick rear window if i were picking today but if i were in 1954 and hearing about the mob control on the docks and how much of this was inspired by true events. I mean they are both crimes, but Rear Window is really yeah there there is a murder in that as well, but it's also the kind of crime where that that may be it. Right, there's low odds of a repeat offense because of the nature of the relationship involved, whereas in this one there there are more murders just in these few days and there's no guarantee that that's where it was going to start and end if they didn't take action. So, yeah, I think if, if for today's audiences, I would say Rear Window is the stronger film, but for 1954 audiences, I get why you'd have that extra resonance from On the Waterfront, especially, as we said, based on a bunch of news articles. So I would have had those in there, and I certainly would have bumped... Seven Brides for Seven Brothers I've seen in the last couple of years. That I could easily bump off the list for Rear Window. Three Coins in the Fountain did not engage me, but I barely remember it. I remember we saw it because I remember when we saw Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, I got the reference Steve Martin made by singing Three Coins in a Fountain on the bus. Uh And then everybody else knew the Flintstones theme song better. So, yeah. I knew I had the context for it, but that's it. I remember it was the one of the the musicals that my mom showed us, but my sister and I didn't take to it. So it wasn't a a Brigadoon or a Singing in the Rain. Brigadoon I did watch a lot of. If I were to pick a musical from this year, I would have picked Brigadoon.
0: Two other things I wanted to touch on before we move on to who we would recommend it for. One was education. And the United States, at least, is highly unionized. So I didn't know if the same was the true in Canada and if you had any thoughts about the representation of a union here or if it resonated with any experiences you might have had or not. Or
1: Most teachers in Canada are unionized. There are fairly strong teacher unions in each province. I am actually working in a non-union school. So, I've never actually been a part of the union. I support unions in general. I feel my local union is a little too strong in the sense that it allows seniority to trump performance. So, I know people who were second and third year teachers who got laid off with students who are, I mean, standardized testing is not the be all and end all, but it is an indication of how the students in the class are performing. So I know that two teachers in the same school have had a 20% difference in their students' performance on the standardized tests. And the fact that they're in the same school, we're talking same socioeconomic background, Right. Wow. it's effectively a random sample, and yet the teacher with the higher performance was laid off because of union seniority rules, which is harmful to the students, that is not uniquely Canadian. About 10 years ago, I heard news that the state of California, their Supreme Court, said that no seniority has to take second place to actual performance with the teacher unions when they're deciding who to lay off and who not, because it's harmful to the students to keep the poor performing teacher. And to my knowledge, no other region in North America has followed suit with that.
0: I think it was accurate to the extent of un unfortunately unions are less social organizations and more businesses just like any other business and profit becomes king and in any organization where profit is king you typically have someone who's making money and someone who who is not i mean that's. That's just the nature of things i I have kind of a conflicting personal history with unions my My paternal grandfather was a painter by trade, like painted bridges and industrial buildings and things you know things of that nature and later in his life, he was the president, and my grandmother was the secretary of the local painters' union. When I was fresh out of high school, I worked at a grocery store, and when we were hired, it was kind of presented as a fait accompli. You know, here's your application, you know, here you're signing that you're accepting the offer of employment, and the second page was kind of a, a union registration, almost like this is how you sign up for your benefits. And within a year, I was working... At the front desk, kind of in the customer service uh, level, where we were supervising the busboys and whatnot, and I had an experience to where someone filed a grievance against me because they thought it wasn't fair that I were was asking them to clean the bathrooms. They thought that it was demeaning or what have you, and they had union representation, and I was a dues-paying member of the union, but because I was quote-unquote management, I wasn't afforded the same accommodation. So that's where I kind of became aware that there was not always the same level playing field and the same benefits weren't extended to all. And that that somewhat soured me on the concept of unions. I I do recognize that they have been a force for labor reform and can be good. But in some cases, I think today the unions exist solely for the point of existence and the profit of the Of some of the senior officials of the unions, so I say all that to say, you know, I found the concept of a union to where some corrupt elements had come in and the union was no longer really serving its constituents resonated with me a little
1: bit. Yeah, I can see that because I'm. That's kind of where I am with the, the local unions, and part of it is the union has partnered. And officially or unofficially with the local education institutions. So, I mean, when I was getting my Bachelor of Ed, part of the graduation process was, here's your union application. Here's how you get into the union. Here's where you find a list of all the teaching jobs in the province, go to this website. But that website was run by the union. So schools like the one I'm at right now cannot list positions there. And yet it's being presented as though the union option is the only option. I know a number of teachers who had no idea that this independent school board even exists or that independent not just the board but there's we're part of ASCA which is the Independent School Council Association. So, yeah, all we don't get some of the the union benefits like the the pension and the union guaranteed pay, but it's still schools. I would rather be teaching here than in a lot of union schools cuz union schools tend to be larger and that's it. I, it's a small school. Mhm. Uh-huh. Which is nice, because when I, I, I'm here as the, the math and physics teacher at the high school level. So I start teaching students math in grade 10, and I work with, with those students all the way through. Whereas in a larger school, like I know had I gone to a school where I did my student teaching, I would probably be faced with new students every year, because that's a grade 10 to 12 school with a population of about 2,500.
0: Wow. Okay. So
1: every semester, I'd probably be teaching, you know, three sections of the same class or the, the same course to 90 students I've never met before. Whereas with this one, yeah, I only teach one copy of each section, which is a lot more on my end for planning, right? Because I can't make one lesson plan and then use it three times a day. Right. I'm, I'm, I've got a four-course load. I'm teaching four different courses every day with four different lesson plans but at the same time that I get to know the students and they get to know me so as long as that relationship is working we can really work together over that time so it there are definite benefits to it so generally speaking I support unions I think the issue that is exactly like you just said and on the waterfront it's a corrupt union that causes problems and not just a union.
0: Right. The second thing I wanted to bring up was when I was younger and getting into film, I'd always hear Eli Kazan used in conjunction with the blacklist. And I think the impression I had originally was that he was someone who was blacklisted for being a suspected communist. But in some of the things that have come out as we've been covering this era, he more famously testified in 1952 and named Names. There are some scholars who kind of view On the Waterfront as not so much an apology, but maybe a defense for being one who testifies and Names Names. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that thematically or if looking back if that stands out to you or
1: Maybe I'm not actually not sure because I hadn't I didn't have that same association. So it didn't really twig with me there. So
0: I I think if Kazan was doing it, I think he made a false argument. I understand the defense of I did something that others consider weak, but I did it for the preservation of myself or my family or whatever. But, you know, identifying potential socialists or members of the Communist Party in Congress versus testifying against mobsters who had somebody killed, I, if he was trying to make that analogy, I, I don't think it's an even analogy.
1: I don't think so either, because it's. Uh, while I have issues with a lot of the Communist governments in the world, the actual Marxist communism is really just putting others first. And that I don't have an issue with. It's The main issues I have are that, as I said, most of the governments that are working to communist ends are not altruistic. And that's the problem. It's, and it's not the communist principles that are causing the corruption. It's that the communist principles... I, I think Marxism has a place, but society as a whole has to mature enough for it to work and the human species just isn't there yet. So it's rife with exploitation. But yeah, I don't think that that uh, yeah, I, I don't see that as an equivalent either. So who would you recommend this to?
0: I would recommend it to anyone who enjoys crime fiction. This isn't noir like things like The Glass Key or The Killers. But like I can see a through line between a film like this and The Godfather. So if you just kind of like good gritty crime drama, I, I think this would be a good fit for you.
1: Yeah, I I would agree, and it's it's not quite true crime. It is definitely a film directed by someone who's very often associated with film noir. So it, it borrows a lot of the film noir filmmaking elements to it in terms of the storytelling, in terms of the structure, and the fact that it's inspired by non-fiction articles. So all the characters are fictional, but the, it, it's a highly plausible and highly realistic type of fiction.
0: I I don't say this to cheapen it, but it reminds me of some of the best episodes of Law and Order, to where um, they were topical and you know they had enough names filed off to avoid lawsuits, but were still presenting kind of dramatizations of cases that people that would resonate with people. I I, I think this is really similar. It's got a, a really strong. Ver- Versimilitude. You would believe that this happened.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree that that is that, that's a, a totally fair assessment. So, shall we let people know what to expect next month?
0: Next month, we are going to be covering Marty starring Ernest Borgnine, and we will be joined by none other than the co-host of Make ours Marvel, John Wilson.
1: Yeah, we'll be looking forward to that. That's it's always nice to podcast with John. So people who know that the structure of this podcast was initially inspired by the unofficial seventy five Greatest Marvels countdown, where there were rotating hosts every week. And John was the most common co host on that. So we'll be discussing Marty, which I think is also the shortest best picture winner to date. It's only ninety minutes. Uh, The other nominees for the year were Love is a Many, Splendid Thing, Mr. Roberts, Picnic, and The Rose Tattoo. So, anyway, you can join us for that next month. And thank you for listening. Thanks,
0: everyone. My mom always said, life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get.
1: want some more.